Welcome to Bricks and Brownstones, your source for all things Boston real estate. I'm your host, Alexandra Salmon, a real estate agent with Douglas Elliman. And today I'm, I'm so excited about this guest. I'm joined by celebrity interior designer, Wayfair Tastemaker of the Year, HGTV contestant, Stephen Favreau. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Wow, thank you, Alexandra. That's a fantastic little intro there. <laughs> yeah, so um, how long have you been in interior design? I have, well, I went back, I was a professional uh, dancer, singer at one time, and we, I'm sure you'll ask me about that later, but... Uh, yeah, I saw you were a professional actor. I want to get back to that. Okay, we'll talk about that. But uh, there was a turning point when I moved back to New York City Okay. that I felt like I was ready to make a change. I moved back to New York City after being gone for quite a while, and I realized that my heart wasn't in it, or and or that... I didn't have the connections, the networking that okay. I had developed prior. And so I went back to school to the Fashion Institute of Technology. Okay. So you grew up here though, right? You, I did. Yeah. I'm originally from Milford, Massachusetts. Okay. Right? And right. I went to school initially at, to the Boston Conservatory of Music. Okay, because that's what you thought you were going to do. Right. Musical theater and dance, which I did do right. for about 12 years. Okay. Is that kind of what sparked your interest in design, being on the sets and just seeing the creations? Or Ah, I love that you made that connection. I just made that connection maybe two or three years ago where I realized that my design is absolutely informed by my time on the stage, particularly things like the sets and the costumes and the sort of the colored lights and the jewel tones. And right. If you look at my design, it is more is more is more and layers of texture and layers of color and, and lots of light play. So yes, absolutely informed by my time on the stage. Yeah. All right. So you, so then you went into the, you know, the music and theater world, went to the Boston Conservatory, did that for a living. It was all, I guess, you know, probably always loved the design, but you were kind of all in on your, you know, your, uh, your career in the, in the acting and dancing industry. Right. Well, one of the things that I realized is I had spent most of my life, even as a child, decorating, designing. Okay. My parents would go out and I would rearrange the furniture because <laughs> I thought it would look better. Or um, do, did they encourage that or would they come back and like, get mad? Oh, I'd say that they were mostly encouraging. Yeah, actually, they... they um, I think that when I would move their furniture around, they started to get a little testy. I started with my bedroom. And okay. Then, and then once I got more confident, I'd start moving their furniture around. But I think I would often say, hey, do you mind if I give this a go? Right. So it's something that I realized every time I got a new home, even as a performer, even a rental apartment, I would transform it as much as I could within right. the, the world of a renter. Yeah. And I even recalled just recently that there were times when I was still a performer where friends would say to me, can you help me? Okay. And I literally, I, I, I recall helping a client, I mean a friend, do their daughter's bedroom where she literally gave me a budget, talked to me about sort of in a very high level what they were looking for and then they went out, they went away and they let me do it. Oh, so wow. it was literally, I was performing like an interior designer before I even knew it. Right. And did you love it? at that time too? Or? I did, yeah. I, um, uh, you know, people have accused me of being so good at so many things that, and that it comes so naturally to me that yeah. I forget to acknowledge that, that yes, I do love it or that uh, I'm good at it or 
that it's a gift. Right. And so I've just recently started making those acknowledgments. So yes, I think I think I always loved doing it, and but because it was more part of my DNA, I didn't even stop to think that I loved doing it. I just did it. Right. Or that you can even do it as a career. Oh, yeah. That never crossed my mind growing up middle class in Milford, Massachusetts. Nobody used an interior designer. Right. I had no idea what it was. In fact, when I enrolled at FIT, I was there for commercial illustration because I was always an artist and a painter. And then I saw these friends, my peers, other students walking around with these big portfolios of, of sort of fabrics and floor plans and I said to them what's all this and they said well I'm an interior design major okay I said what what do you mean interior design I can do that and that's when I I changed you know almost instantly okay so you were you know you were doing uh, acting and you know theater heart wasn't really in it and dancing you know heart wasn't in it the same way anymore pivoted went to FIT Correct. kind of thought you'd do one thing but then you were exposed to this world of interior design that you had already kind of dabbled in without even knowing it it just came naturally to you because you know you were good at it and you loved it right. and then you said wait I can I can do this yeah absolutely yeah. so was that the first time you had relocated to New York had you been kind of all Boston at that point or did you move to New York at some point you know to be an entertainer right obviously. right well yeah. you know I was a, a quote-unquote gypsy Broadway gypsy they okay. don't use that word anymore because it's not very PC I guess okay but it's always been that term when you're a, a performer and you're on the road a lot right. you're a Broadway gypsy and so um, I moved to New York City right out of the Boston Conservatory uh, spent about a year there auditioning mostly and studying further and then I got a job singing and dancing on a cruise ship in the Caribbean and uh, met a Dutch officer as one does (laughs) and uh, moved to Holland and was dancing on television there so I I was in and out of New York City probably a few times before I moved back in uh, sort of mid 1990s and that's when I realized I had sort of lost my drive to do do it any further. Okay. This is, you know, at, so at this point, yeah, it was just it was time to time to do something else. So yeah. your time in Europe, I'm sure that inspired your uh, you know, your eye for design or the elements that you incorporate. Oh yeah. Uh, in fact, I would say that one of my biggest inspirations outside of sort of my theatrical background is uh, travel and specifically antiquity. I love more than anything in the world antique homes. Yeah. So uh, I love house museums. Whenever I travel, I go wherever I can, wherever I am, I look for the house museum. And it doesn't have to be the big grand tourist attraction, it can be something simple. Uh, right. I, when I was in Paris recently, I went to Victor Hugo's home. Oh, wow. And that was so much fun. And. And uh, here in Boston, the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, of course. Yeah. Uh, I think she did live there at some time, although she didn't build it as her home. But I'm always looking for the home, the antique home. And and the early American especially excites and inspires me. But uh, in general, generally speaking, travel and antiques. Okay, so that's really sort of the basis of your inspiration. You kind of go from there. Or does it depend on the project, I guess? Huh. Um, it, it certainly depends on the project and I'm inspired 
First and foremost, I think most, if not all designers are inspired by their client. Right. right? And with the client comes the location and the structure itself. So uh, that, I would be remiss to, to, to discount that and not include that. And right. sort of my first inspiration, it has to be. Uh, I don't know how you can get around that. There are few clients out there. They do exist. <laughs> there are a few clients out there who just say, okay, here's the money. I'm going away for two years. Do what you want. <laughs> and uh, when those... Is that your favorite client? Well, <laughs> I joke that the worst part about interior design is the client. Okay. And I, and I say I joke because it's not really true. In fact, right. I have great relationships with my clients and they do inspire me. But... Uh, Facetiously, I can say that the fact that there's someone between me and the art, meaning the client, right. can uh, makes it more of a challenge. Right. And sometimes the best part of when I design, let's say I create an entire living room and I show the storyboard, which is the kind of flat piece of, with the materials and the floor plan, and it shows them what their room will look like. They say things like, I love it, I love it, I love it, except for this one thing. Can we change this? And nine times out of ten, they want to change the most important part of what I did. Oh. Or the most uh, courageous, the most creative. So, it's uh, at the end of the day, interior design is a customer service business. Right. Right? So, that's why I say facetiously. Uh, I very much like working with my clients, and oftentimes they become very good friends. So... But uh, back to your initial question is that uh, we have to get inspired by our, our client and the property, where the property is located right. and the use of the property. So you have function versus form. Right. And uh, then from there to, to your question more directly, I would say that I, uh, very interesting. I guess you're right. It changes with every property and depends on what I'm inspired by. So sometimes it might be a rug. It might be a piece of fabric. It might be the view out the window. It might be the millwork in the home. And then I just jump from there. Yeah, that makes sense. So then when you got into interior design, I guess you were, you know, you went to FIT, uh, you know, you learned the, uh, I guess, I don't know, sort of the craft. Yeah, the basics, all of the, yeah, the groundwork. Right. Because you've just been sort of going by instinct at that point. Absolutely. So, I had no idea. Right. So then, it, I don't know, you you know, yeah, refined it a little more. And then did you come back to Boston right away? I know New York has a lot of history too, but, mm. yeah. Oh, that's a good question. No, I actually, after I was done at FIT, I got sidetracked because by day I was working at a PR agency for the three senior vice presidents as their uh, executive assistant. Okay. And so when I was pretty much finishing up with... FIT, I got offered the job of marketing director for Paper Mill Playhouse in Maplewood, uh, sorry, Milburn, New Jersey. Oh, wow. Which is a very large, they're a $19 million budget. They feed shows into Broadway all the time. Newsies was their show that moved to Broadway, Honeymoon in Vegas. There have been many shows. And so it was sort of taking what I had learned recently, which was marketing and public relations, and marrying it with my love, which was still musical theater. Right. And so, unfortunately, or fortunately, who knows? I guess we'll never know. Uh, I got sidetracked doing that for about eight years. Oh, wow. Not just there. Then I moved out to San Jose, where I was the marketing and fundraising director of the American Musical Theater of San Jose, which okay. was also a big $19 million operation. Wow. And then I said to the producer, who was my boss and a colleague and a friend, 
I really need to start focusing on my interior design career. And he said, okay, can you do both at least for a while? And I said, yes, I can. And that's what we did. So that's when I started my company out in San Jose in 2006. Oh, wow. So during those eight years that you would, you know, become educated, uh, you know, at FIT and thought that, you know, eventually you would go down that path. And then, you know, you were doing the marketing and PR thing and also still involved in musical theater. Uh, were you doing interior design at all during those years or were you just locked in musical theater, marketing, PR? You know, I love all this stuff. It takes all my energy, my time, you know. Yeah. No, actually, I was doing it. Um, mostly, I think at that point, I was mostly doing it for myself. So now I had a steady job and good credit. And so I bought a house. <laughs> Which is right? important. Yeah, especially important. when you want to buy a house. Yeah. Right. And so I bought a house built in 1660. Oh, wow. In Maplewood, New Jersey. Okay. And uh, so that was sort of where suddenly I had something that was all mine and needed a lot of work. Okay. And what could I do to it? And that's when, I guess, on some level, my interior design career or non-interior design career started taking another form in that I was tackling an entire property. Right. And it was yours, so you can do whatever you wanted. Well, yeah. You know, people say to me, who is your best client? <laughs> and I yourself. jokingly, I stress jokingly, <laughs> I say, I'm my best client. Yeah. Right? There's never yeah. going to be that division between, you know, you and the art. Exactly. You think whatever right. you They're did was the great. Same. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So then uh, you started your company. You were out in San Jose at the time. Yes. Yeah, I was in San Jose. Okay, what made you come back here? Well, I stayed. I was there 2006 to 2013, I think. Uh, I had moved my company to San Francisco, was doing very well. I also owned a staging company, which is a real estate staging company that I'm sure you're familiar with. But uh, in California, it's very popular. Few homes are sold without staging them. And so I started that company on the side as sort of a feeder to my interior design business and also uh, as a way to earn extra income. Right. And uh, then I did a property in Vermont and Design New England magazine picked it up to feature it on the cover. And I thought, I need to explore this further. My family was all back here. Right. And uh, I thought, I need to see if it's feasible for me to open an office in Boston. Okay. So I hired a publicist and the magazine launched and I opened my business here and it went great right from the start. So I spent the past sort of, or the three years from 2013 to 2016 back and forth, literally every month from Boston to San Francisco. And then two years ago, I, I... closed down my Boston office. I just sold my staging company out there about six months ago and uh, have been full-time here in Boston for about two and a half years. Okay, so you sold the San Francisco one and then you're, you're just like all in All here. finished, all finished. Wow. Yeah. So what made you want to come back? Uh, I mean, was it family or was it, were you also just sort of excited by the, the history and the architecture of the city? Uh, all of the above. Yeah. I was also going through a divorce at the time. Okay. Not that... Uh, I don't think that made my decision to move back here, but it certainly made it possible for me to go anywhere, Yeah. right? Sort of the world was my oyster. And so uh, between my family being here, uh, the business taking off, and also in, in California, I never felt at home there. 
that's interesting you know what i've lived uh, i lived in charlotte north carolina and you know what it got to the point where it felt like and i was there for because i went to college there and then i was there after college for about five years and it got to the point where it really felt like my second home but yeah. i never i never felt home and when i would come here i felt home so eventually i did move back but yeah yeah, yeah. that's literally uh, i think on my final uh trip to boston i literally got off the plane and i had this feeling like I was home. Uh. And what's interesting about that is for those who know me and, and see me and see the Favreless factory, which right. I'm sure we'll talk about, I'm not your typical Bostonian. And uh, that's so for people to say, really, you wanted to be in Boston? But it was in my blood. I grew up here. Right. And from a business standpoint, I actually, it's the best decision I ever made because in San Francisco, on some level, uh, we were a dime a dozen, okay. meaning this sort of out there interior designers who were really pushing the envelope. In Boston, it's very much steeped in tradition. Right. And while there is lots of great interior design going on here, I really stand out in in sort of the outside of the box thinking in the really art, artistic, creative, theatrical way that I do my work. Right. And so because Boston is such a influx now of people from all over the world with all of the new buildings going up, right. they're looking for non-traditional, non-Boston, or it's not in their blood, so they don't even know to look for it. Right. And so when they're looking for someone who's unique and interesting and, and maybe world-class, they find me. Right. So it's actually the best decision I ever made. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you came back. Or me we, too. We never Thank went across you. paths. So, yeah. So, you, I mean, you came back. You opened up your office. Was it, uh, we're, we're at the Fabulous Factory, which is Stephen's amazing studio. And it's in the seaport. Were you always in the seaport? Because, you know, you said 2013. I'm thinking about what the seaport was like then. And obviously, right. it's totally right. different now. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I said that I went to school here. I went to the Boston Conservatory in the 80s. Okay. And uh, you didn't even come to Seaport. There was no reason to come over here. It was all parking lots. There were a couple piers, Anthony's Pier 4, right. no-name restaurant, kind of um, kitschy restaurants like that that you would venture out. But there was no reason to come over. And many of the warehouse buildings over here had artists in them who were literally sort of squatting like artists did back in the day. Right. You know, I imagine they probably had some kind of a lease, but some of them didn't have heat, some of them didn't have bathrooms. And so this area was very different. Right. Uh, 2013, it was definitely where it is today, although today, there, are, if you look out our windows here, you can see right. probably 8 to 12 cranes yeah. in many different areas. Right. So, um, yeah, Seaport is changing. It's changing every day. And I guess I have always been in the Seaport because my first place was over in Fort Point. Okay, right. Which is sort of smushed between Seaport and South Boston. And yeah. realtors argue as to whether it's Seaport or South Boston. So who knows? But it's Fort Point. Yeah. And that's where I have my home today as well. Okay, so you live in Fort Point too? I do, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, what about the seaport in 2013 made you want to come here? Was it the, because it's, I mean, when you're in the seaport, obviously you have new construction all the time, but anything that sort of has a history, like you said, there was really not a lot over here except for the warehouses. So it does have that, you know, there's condos that have been converted from warehouses and it has that, you know, yeah. that feeling to it. Right. Well, I, I'm not, I think if you said to me, 
what do you prefer? What kind of an apartment would you live in? I would say, well, my dream was always a warehouse loft. You know, okay. We all, not all, I shouldn't say all, but many of us have had that dream maybe because of movies back in the day or right. I don't know what it is. But when I moved back to Boston, I just decided I'm going to get a warehouse loft. Okay. And that's how I ended up in Fort Point. Uh, I've certainly lived in high-rise glass structures, new ones like down in Seafort. Right. And I think the other draw for me to be down in this area is that the design center is right here. Right. right? So I was always over here. We're about 600 yards from it. And, and I love innovation. I love new uh, ideas and progress. I also love seeing what happens to old structures and old buildings and old neighborhoods as they are sort of brought back to life and, yeah. and something new and exciting is happening and all of that is happening in Seaport. Right. So yeah, to be around it every day. It's yeah. the energy yeah. sure kind of feed off of. Right. And like I said to you, the international clientele. Right. Which is really important to me. Oh yeah. I feel like, you know, when I'm in the Seaport and being in real estate, you know, you're in all different kinds of neighborhoods in the city. Right. And you can, I mean, I live in the North End, but then when I'm in Cambridge, I feel like I'm in a totally different city. I oh, mean, I yeah. guess technically I am. <laughs> but then, you know, you come here and it's a different feeling. And yeah, that's, uh, no, it's, you know, that's, that's an element that I'm sure you, you know, kind of draw from. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, although I could okay. easily live in Beacon Hill for obvious reasons because sure, of the, the history. history. Yeah. Right? Uh, I, I could see myself in Cambridge. I could see myself in the North End. And there are many places I could easily live in Back Bay. So right. I, I think that's partly because Boston in general is such a mix of history and new and old and right. fresh, exciting ideas and, and academia. So for me, it's easy to live lots of places in Boston. Oh, for sure. Yeah, although there's some neighborhoods, like when you're in Beacon Hill or you're in Back Bay, you're like, this is very quintessentially Boston. Being in the seaport, it's exciting, but, you know, when you said international, it sparked the thought of that. You know, when you're in the seaport, you feel like, other than being on the water, there's times that I feel, it, it almost feels to me a little like being in downtown Charlotte because it's just new. Right, oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that because I have my warehouse loft and I have my, my headquarters here, Right. That's what sort of rounds out Seaport for me. If I didn't have those two things, how would I feel about it? I, I can't say. But, right. But uh, it doesn't matter because it is what it is. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just the perfect place for you. Right. But, you know, we're talking about the history of the city. What are your favorite classic Boston architectural elements? Like when you have a client and they say, oh, you know, this is where I live. This is the space I want to, re you know, redo. You're just like, yes, you're so right, excited right, to get right, in right. there. Yeah. Uh, interesting question. I, you know, I am drawn to brownstones, but they are notoriously dark. Yeah. Right? Because they're sandwiched between two other buildings oftentimes, although sometimes there's a corner. And uh, I love sort of the thoroughfare of sort of Calm Ave in Back Bay where you have that strip of park down the middle. But when we think about something quintessentially Boston... For me, my, my love, my favorite thing when it comes to history is early American. Okay. So that period in the mid to 1700s that um, we, from I guess the birth of America right. and that, that period after where America was coming down to, um, or, or learning who, it, who America was. Right. right? So... Uh, Without being as succinct as you might want me to be, no. I would say that uh, 
early American architecture is exciting to me. Right. And so things like dentile moldings and of course I don't want to be an ignorant American and, and say that it's even early American it's probably uh, come over from Europe right Right. so uh, but whatever that influence is and how it impacted us and our architecture I love although I can tell you that a lot of what I'm doing these days is I'm reimagining what that could be for okay. today's living for instance on a client in Beacon Hill right now uh, we added this big grand molding to her living room and we added dentil molding, but the dentil molding is literally five inches tall, okay. just the dentil piece, because I want to play with scale and shape and size and composition and how things relate to each other. So now I'm sort of playing with that sort of historic architecture and blowing it up and twisting it around for today's living. Right. So what do you, I mean, the, with the early American, is it the... Um, just the sense of like fostering our own identity as a country is that really gets you what about it you know do you love so much the early american history yeah or well what do i you know i never stopped and thought about it i you know i love what i'm most drawn to on television are things like costume dramas and period pieces yeah and i love the formality the lushness, the creative spark. Uh, I would say that it was a time when it was before the revolution or the, the machine age where everything was made by hand. Yeah. So I suppose that's part of it. It just, I always say to my staff that if it feels right in your gut, then it's right. If it yeah. doesn't feel right in your gut, then it's not right. And so it just feels right in my gut. I like it. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that further. Yeah, no, it's, I just think it's so interesting. So, you, like you said, you're, you know, you're reimagining it to, you know, keep all the things about it that are great, but repurpose it to, you know, what it, it sh could and should be for living in it today. Like to be in Beacon Hill, you know, you want, a, you know, you want a renovated space that's, you know, up to date and that's functional for your day-to-day -day life. Right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those take an old place and tear everything out. I, would, right. I never do that. I, I sort of revere the original architecture. So it is a really fine line between how I do it and tends to be, doesn't sort of hurt the architecture itself. I mean, when we're getting into things like, like the crown molding, that's in some ways as far as I'll go with changing the architecture. But then I explore some of these other elements in my wallpaper, in my paints, my fabrics, my furniture, my rugs, my f things like that, that are, that are going to complement with the historic architecture without ruining it for the right. next. Because I think we're stewards of architecture and it's only ours for the time that we're there and that it's up to us to hand it over to the next person uh, to steward it. That's really and beautiful. Thank you. It, it breaks my heart, actually, when somebody tears up an old place. Yeah. Unless it's falling apart. And right. then, then, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But so for me, for instance, with the property I did in Vermont, what was built in 1832, I saw a lot of old photographs of the home. And for instance, in the foyer, they had this pinstripe wallpaper. Okay. From back in the day. And that inspired me to go with a really big, bold, wide stripe echoing sort of what was done back then, but how bold and wide can we go 
and still have it seem like it's appropriate to the property. And I it's did really cool. a lot of that. Thank you. I did, uh, I, for the dining room, I did a wallpaper on the ceiling that was a gold wallpaper with silver stars, sort of like, in my mind, the, the American flag. Okay. And then I had a custom rug made in exactly the same pattern as the ceiling to echo those same stars. And so it's those sort of fun plays with antiquity and what was the birth of our nation and what was going on at the time where I play with that and how I adorn the home. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And that's just my residential work. Right. Yeah, so I want to get into that because you, uh, you know, you don't just do residential work. You do, you've done hotels, you've done all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people for years told me that my work is so theatrical. Yes. That it really lends itself to hotels and restaurants. Right. And I have focused on that. 50% 50% of the time in the past few years because it is something, it is that place where you can really be, you can stretch your imagination and you can play with different themes and you're, you're, you're giving people an experience. Right. right. They're going away from their homes to have an experience elsewhere. Yeah. And so to me, that's where you can really be playful and have a good time and, and not be confined to sort of the necessary form versus function of residential living. Right. No, so that must be, uh, I don't know, so much fun. It it's is. Such a yeah, breath well, of fresh air. And it, yeah, and it's a nice sort of counterpoint to doing residential. I get the best of both worlds. Yeah, that's really cool. What's your favorite project you've ever done? Ah, uh, well, um, that's funny you say that. Well, my favorite project I've ever done would have to be the Favreless Factory, my headquarters. <laughs> right. Um, 11,000 square feet and it was just all from my imagination and it's dripping with antiquities from 1790 to 1970 and everywhere in between. It really shows off my aesthetic from a standpoint of old versus new, gritty versus sleek, dark, light, profound, profane. I just love that sort of argument between those two diverse groups and how they elevate each other you know i think for instance imagine a all-white roche-beaubois penthouse in the middle of seaport right and then put in a beautiful grandfather clock from 1790 or or a gorgeous sort of sideboard from italian walnut in 1820 suddenly that roche-beaubois sofa is as exciting as that antique. Right. Whereas if everything is sort of of the same period and all contemporary or all antique, while it can absolutely be beautiful, to me it's much more exciting if you play with those juxtapositions. Right. And here, again, you can, you know, it's your place, so you can, you can juxtapose whatever you want. Nobody's going right. to tell you not to. Yeah, and I so. can move things around when I feel like it, too. Right. So that's exciting. So. It, it is amazing. We're here right now. Like you said, 1,100 square feet, and you walk 11,000. Sorry, 11,000. 1,100's like a, you know, <laughs> Just the like conference a, Yeah, room. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, to answer your question, too, the my other favorite project is the one that's yet to be done, and it's called The Favreless, and it's a hotel. Okay. And so we, uh, it's just something that's living in my mind. I don't have it right now. Okay. I don't have the investors. I've started creating uh, 
renderings and elevations of what it could look like wow. so that when the time comes I can pitch it and I have a, a sort of a guest suite already created cool. and the restaurant as well so cross what? your fingers and if you have any uh, restaurateurs I mean or some hoteliers out there yeah I'll for, for all of you listen closely <laughs> listen up we have a hotel so what uh, now I want to hear about this so what what is the restaurant gonna look like what kind of food oh. does it I mean well you know what, and here's now I've like I kind of thought of another question oh so is it um, did you start with the idea of this is what kind of food I want to serve or did you start with this is what it would look like and then you're like this is the type of food I would like oh, it to Oh interesting. Have. Well again it's, it's a hotel so it's not just a restaurant. It's right. a restaurant in the hotel and you know it's funny you say that because of the fact that it's not sort of a real uh, it's not being built. There is no client. There is no chef. I didn't have to worry about those things right. or even think about those things. If it was sort of a normal situation, then of course it would be really important to understand the cuisine and the experience that the guests would have to have when they come in and uh, things that are functionally important like durability of furnishings and the hostess stand, the host stand, the, the how the waiters move around the space, the restrooms, the kitchen, all of it is so important. But in this case, it was just just right out of my imagination. And I, this particular one was from an artist that I love who takes antiquity paintings or or statues, and he he's a fine artist, so he will reproduce that painting, but he will give it a contemporary twist. So for instance, he did the statue of David in a painting, but he put him in baseball pants and had a, cool. you know, had a, a baseball bat over his shoulder. And so he really plays with this old and new, which is right up my alley and it's really exciting to me. So those inspired the space and then the space went from there and it's just an assault of color and pattern. And uh, it's quite an experience. Ideally, where do you see this existing in a larger city or kind of in the countryside or does it mm. even matter? Uh, definitely a city. I think that I'm at heart, I'm, my work resides in a city. Yeah. Although I've done many places in the country. Uh, and, and purely from a business standpoint, I think it, it should be in the city where it has the, the density of clientele. I imagine this particular hotel in Paris because I have such a love for Paris. I was a dancer at the Moulin Rouge for oh a while. Oh my gosh. There's wow. another little sidebar. Cool. Sidebar. But um, so any major city, London, Paris, Tokyo, Chicago, LA, Boston. <laughs> so uh, there you go. If you said, but you can pick anywhere, I'd say, okay, Paris. Wow. I hope that happens, and then I want to. I want to stay in the guest suite. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm taking investors. All right, all you investors out there, <laughs> Paris, it's going to be amazing. You want to get in on this. All right. Don't be like the investors who sat on the sidelines with Uber and are kicking themselves oh, now because you're. you're true. If you don't that's jump true. on this, you're going to be one of those. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, so, I know that we. Sort of touched on this, and this is so not even as interesting, but probably more functional for people. So let's say you're renting a place in the city, and it's old, it's dated, you know, because you're trying to save money, so it's cheap. Right. But but you're a renter, so there's only so much you can do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what do, what do you think would be the top things that somebody could do to you know kind of make it their own and make it more? Uh, I love that I can answer this question succinctly because. My first, uh, the loft I told you about in Fort Point, the yeah. first one when I first moved back to Boston, 
was a rental. Okay. And uh, being an interior designer, there was no way I was going to stand for those white walls. Right. And so I actually went about creating a beautiful warehouse loft of my dreams as much as I could with it being a rental. And, and it was so successful, it was featured in New England Home Magazine. Oh my gosh. So uh, some of the things I would say to do are, well, in the case of the warehouse loft, I could, I could buy things that I could take with me that would serve the space. So in this case, with the big warehouse loft, it's one big open space. Right. And how do you make that feel intimate? How do you create sort of secondary spaces for living without taking away the beauty of a big open loft, which is to me, the reason you get a loft right. is so that you don't have walls. So I use cabinetry, I use bureaus, dressers, things floating in the middle of the space to define sort of the living room from the bedroom. And uh, even in the case of the bedroom where I wanted a little more privacy, I got a very large cabinet that stood, I don't know, nine feet tall and separated the entryway from the bedroom with the back of the cabinet. Oh, wow. So I had the front of the cabinet as my closet in my bedroom area. The back of the closet, which was unfinished, I simply went online and found a cheap uh, mural. I, the one I found was a New York City skyline, and I adhered it temporarily to the back of this cabinet, so now it became the, re the other side of the cabinet that was in the foyer. It's really cool. Um, thank you. And I, I did a lot of draping. I would use okay. fabric and use that as temporary ways to, to, have to indicate spaces. There are lots of new innovative wallpapers out now that peel right off. Right. So that's a, I think that's a great option. I mean, frankly, I, I feel like I'm going to paint a wall of, in my apartment if it serves me. Right. And if I can enjoy it for a year and just know that at the end of the year I have to paint it back to white. Right. I think people are a little bit afraid of that. And I know we all have budgets, so I don't yeah. want to ignore that. But the other thing I did is I, I used... Uh, a great fabric that I had left over from a job on the wall in the dining room that I literally just tacked it up with thumbtacks and it was stunning and if you see the photos in New England Home Magazine you would never know that that's all I did. Wow. Well, the biggest thing I did in that apartment was they had a lot of this, the kitchen cabinetry was from the early 90s and it was sort of I guess their interpretation of what contemporary was back then Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was just simple flat almost like painted um, plywood. I got electrician's tape, uh, blue electrician's tape, okay. and I just put random stripes all over the cabinet with the tape. Cool. And then when I moved out, I just peeled the tape off and I was on my way. Yeah. So it's about that. How do you embellish surfaces uh, that are temporary? I like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So uh, what do you think of... Um, the trends that have kind of emerged, I think probably the last like five or 10 years, I feel like, so my parents, they bought their house in 2006 and they were enamored with the kitchen because it had granite countertops and you know stainless steel appliances and the cabinets were dark and that was kind of the look and it was like, I don't know, it felt luxurious. Now that feels more dated and people are into, you know, they want white cabinetry, kind of light kitchens, open concepts. Right. What trends of the moment do you think are kind of here to stay? And then what do you think we'll look back on like, you know, like neon bathrooms from the seventies and be like, Oh, like what were we thinking? Oh, uh, you know, I've given a lot of thought to this lately because 
I, I like to think of myself as a trendsetter, not a yeah. trend follower. Right. In fact, here in the factory, we have a lot of graffiti that I had done. Yeah. And I gave the graffiti artist words to use. And one of them was, create, don't replicate. Love it. And so, and I think that's what defines sort of the difference, or one of the differences between an interior designer and an interior decorator. Yeah. Is I think as a designer, we're under a certain obligation to create. Right. And so I think about trend a lot in these terms. And so I, I just, I don't want to follow trend. And so for instance, there's certain famous paint company that every year comes out with the color of the year. Yeah. And I just find it absurd because okay. what they're looking for is this sheep mentality where we all follow yeah. the flock, right? So if they say red is the color of the year, suddenly all the interior designers are going to start using red. And I just find that I, I, I don't get it. Right. So having said that, and to answer your question, um, I would say what I see, I just came back from High Point, which is the furniture capital yeah. of the, the country. Oh yeah, North Carolina. Oh, you know, North yeah. Carolina. And so it's the big furniture show and it's everything that's new and now and exciting and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's sort of timely that you would ask me this question. And having said that, as far as the trends and all that, I, I still think that a lot of times we say something is, on tre is trending right. and it's already been happening for five years. I do think that we're moving away from granite. Yeah. I think that we are we're moving away from busy countertop stones. You know, lots of veining and lots of yeah, modeling. Quartz, yeah. Yeah, all of that stuff. So we're looking for more solid and we're willing to do fabricated surfaces like Caesar Stone and, and uh, there's a product called Laminam that are sort of the new and exciting what I imagine maybe back in the 60s and 70s for Mica was that okay. we all tore out in the 80s. Yeah. But uh, and that's the funny thing about interior design. I think there, are, it's very difficult to sort of to know you're doing classic something that's going to stand the test of time. Right. Certainly, we've all done it, and we all have capabilities, and certain ones of us are very good at it. I, because I'm so theatrical. I don't think that I focus on that very much. I like to think that if I am as creative as possible, I it's a very good chance that I'm going to create a trend, right? Right. Because that's how trends happen. Yeah. Somebody, somebody sees it, thinks, "Oh, this is awesome." Doing I it for the do first it. time. Yeah. Right. So I just did kitchen cabinets for a client up in Beacon Hill, where we literally have four different finishes and inlaid brass in their cabinetry. And it's very geometric. It's it's very against this trend that you just mentioned about the white cabinets. Yeah. It could not be more opposite. And that's where I want to live. If everyone's doing white, I'm doing black. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's not just because I want to be different. It's just that I want to explore what hasn't been done, not what is being done. And uh, so... For instance, right now, antique brass is becoming the metal of choice in yeah. our faucetry and our cabinet pulls and things like that, which is so ironic because 30 years ago we were pulling brass out of everywhere. It was right. shiny brass, but we weren't doing brass, and now we're doing brass again. And I love it. So will I use brass? Absolutely. If I love it, I can stand behind it, and it, it feeds into the filter of what I do as a designer. I will not use it. Right. But um, I have a very discerning eye as to what I will follow trend-wise and what I won't. I love that. 
I think that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. What do you think of the open concept of, you know, how, like, I mean, you're in this loft that's all one room, the one that you rented. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's become very trendy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of, do you think that's going to continue? Yeah, I, I love open concept uh, under any circumstance in some ways. That goes against my love of antique buildings because back in the day we didn't do, you know, yeah. you know, try to find a federal pe- uh, home that was built in 1822 that is open concept. Right. And so, to, again, to buy that house and start tearing out walls just goes against my grain uh, without doing it in such a way that's very thoughtful. So I, th- I think that open concept is just very human. I think that this idea of being isolated in a room while others are in another room, except for maybe if you're studying or you need some quiet time or you need some privacy, those obvious uh, needs aside, I feel that open concept is just so much more human and so much more social. And frankly, I just love foreground, mid-ground and background. So, for instance, in the Fabulous Factory, where you have, you can see literally sort of 60 to 80 feet in almost any yeah. direction. Oh, absolutely. You can see what's in the foreground, you can see what's in the midground, and then you can see what's in the background, you can see what's out these huge windows, so even farther out into the background, into the city. And to me, that's what's exciting, is sort of the, the compositions that can happen as a result of no walls. It's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. All right, those are all the questions I have for you. This has been amazing. Thank oh, you so much well, for spending time Oh, thank you. What great questions. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, where can we find you out, uh, out in, on social media and out on the oh. Internet? Yeah. Well, let's see. Well, we, we, we could have gone on for hours <laughs> because my fiancé and I are up for a TV show right now. We're being pitched uh, for sort of a, a new kind of reality show where we're not screaming at each other. Instead, we're loving each other. Isn't that a new and exciting concept? <laughs> yeah. So um, they can follow that at, at The Showman and The Monk. Okay. Or my own private, which is uh, sort of a day in the life of me, is at Stephen Favreau. Okay. And then, of course, if they want to see this amazing space and some of my other work, it's at Favreau's Factory, and that's F-A-V-R-E-A-U-L-O-U-S Factory. Uh, And, of course, my website, favreau'sfactory.com. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Mm -hmm.